Coming up, the felling of Namibia's ancient hardwoods, the criminal gangs behind it, and the environmental reporter who tracked them down. I circle them like a hawk for a while, and then I will move closer, I will try and establish the eating and especially the drinking habits of the managers. Yeah, I basically, I gather intelligence. 1919, Namibia had 8.8 .8 million hectares uh, forest cover, and this is now, in 2020, was down to 6.6. .6. So Namibia has lost a quarter of its forest cover. Very soon we may be seeing all of the things we love most in our world only on television or in a zoo somewhere. My name is Nick Wallace and this is Dirty Deeds, Tales of Global Crime and Corruption, a podcast from the Global Journalism Network, the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, or OCCRP as it's known. This episode is about an investigation by John Grobler, who worked with the OCCRP's Khadija Sharif to highlight the ongoing devastation of Namibia's rosewood trees. These have become known as the bleeding trees, a reference to the dark red sap produced by the rosewoods, which becomes visible once they've been cut down. John's initial investigation in 2017 was a collaboration between the OCCRP and Oxpeckers, Africa's first investigative environmental journalism unit. It was called Felling Namibia's Ancient Giants. John returned in 2020 with an OCCRP report called They Are Finishing the Trees, which speaks for itself. John is an extraordinary character with a long and award-winning history of environmental reporting across Africa. Khadija is his perfect foil, pin-sharp and passionate about the wider structural problems which make the looting of Africa's natural resources a blight on the continent. To finish this episode, I also speak to the Namibian-based environmental sustainability expert Clemens von Dodora, who has his own perspective on the destruction of Namibia's forests. But first, let's hear from John Grobler and Khadija Sharif. John joined me from Namibia and Khadija dialed in from South Africa. I started by asking Khadija why the OCCRP commissioned John's investigation. We are always looking for stories that speak to systemic ecological predation, so these types of uh, endangered timber trafficking stories uh, we did in Gambia and Madagascar, and it's always a similar process. It's corrupt, but often technically legal, and it's uh, enabled by organized crime and so forth. So when, when the world thinks of a country like Namibia or the Gambia, it's usually a distant thought. The mind struggles to recall it because it doesn't feature a bloody and violent genocide. There isn't a warring election process. So people tend to think of it as just fine or peaceable. But in spaces where John lives, you find that systemic predation is fast-tracked. Everything shrinks down. The dominant uh, and governing party called SWAPO, they've been in power since the end of colonialism. And they perform as a kind of corporate company taking pieces uh, of profit of everything that they can sell. They are suspended above the society they govern. They legitimate themselves with the specter of colonialism. We saved you, you, you owe us. And they control these societies with militarism and governed by repression. And so under the guise of empowerment, we can see in this story 
um, how societies and ecologies are intertwined with each other. The government allocated ecologically precious land as cash in the bank for loyalists in the form of resettlement farms. This happened in 2005, 2006, and decades on we can see the consequences. So when a government like Namibia or the Gambia wants to partner, they bring in a similarly repressive government or a government that has the same tendency towards marginalizing its own society and resolving differences in political factions within the party, not within the society or between different political parties. So where you find that a government, uh, for example, the Namibia-China partnership, it becomes a very selective democracy. The upper echelons of power negotiate with each other, and that means that there can be no democracy, no agency or protection for society and specifically for the most vulnerable parts of society. So what John's story showed us is that where the rare and endangered and scarce trees are slayed for profit, the lowest common denominator, those people that are not seen as fully human or that are not empowered with money or political capital, like the sand people, the indigenous people, they are exploited and abused in the same breath. When John approached us with the story, we understood that he was one of the only journalists for a number of different reasons that could go into these spaces and capture the truth of that moment. John, for people who don't know Namibia itself, don't know where the country is in Africa, don't know the terrain and the difficulties that you face reporting what's going on, give us an overview of the geography of Namibia and where these amazing trees can actually be found within the country. Namibia is located on the southwestern tip of the African continent between Angola and South Africa. It is basically a large country, 725,000 square kilometers, most of which is arid or semi-arid. It's only the central plateau where there's possibilities for uh, livestock grazing. The only area where you have these trees is the part of the African teak forest, the central African teak forest, where it extends all the way down from, say, Katanga province of you know, southern DRC through Angola, Zambia, partly into uh, Zimbabwe as well, but also into the northern regions of, uh, of Namibia. So it is a really very limited, very, very valuable resource. And these rosewood trees, which were the focus of your first article in 2017, they're beautiful and, and, and they're highly durable and they're highly in demand, aren't they? And, and it's the boom in demand from China that, that appears to be driving this trade. Yes, it is all due to the um, rise in upward, up, upward mobility in China where everybody now desires to own um, hardwood furniture. No cheap pine stuff like the rest of us. They want the redwood, also called Hongmu. Now, it has to be understood there are various kinds of roads, which some are much, much more rare and much more precious than uh, than others. Namibia's redwood, because it's a slower growing species, tends to be towards the upper end of the most desirable rosebud because it grows too slow, the wood is much, much harder, so you can do much more with it. So, yes, I mean, China's lifting of all, you know, 300, 400 million people out of poverty has had a knock-on effect all over the world and most visibly seen in, yeah, in the forest up north uh, in Kavango. The Chinese took it all. You know, they will go in and hunt these massive old trees that grow to like towering heights of, you know, eight, nine meters. So can be spotted from far away and therefore always the first to go. And, and so was it your spotting of these lorries that were loaded with felled hardwood that first got you 
interested in what was going on up up in uh, Caprivi because the, the geography of Namibia is extraordinary and, and as you said is vast so something must have been going on for those trucks to be seen on their way to port but but you obviously yeah. then had to put two and two together and see what the actual story was well I mean I started seeing all these trucks coming into the office by port I mean it was I was on holiday uh, down the coast with my daughter you know I started following these trucks around because I couldn't <laughs> believe the size of these logs that were coming through and I knew that um, something was off because, first of all, there is not a history of there wasn't a history of logging at all in this country because the the you know the forestry resource has always been very strictly protected. But then I discovered that there's huge mounds of rosewood coming out of Zambia. You know, I started seeing these trucks coming into the port with with huge amounts of raw timber. I have, of course had to go and find out where this was coming from. It's difficult because you were seeing uh, Zambian tracks, you were also seeing Namibian tracks. So at first have told me that this is cross-border stuff. So I went up to Caprivi to Katima Malilo oh, several times. Then um, you know, I started following the trucks around and then I discovered that there was a quiet operation being set up in what is the Caprivi State Forest. I traveled up there, spent you know, several weeks uh, following these guys through the bush on occasion. Got myself into some you know, scrapes there because, you know, if you run into these guys you know, all by yourself in the bush, they kind of take fancy their chances in, uh, in dealing with you. How do you deal with them, John? Do you announce yourself as a journalist or do you, do you just stay there as an observer filming and, and recording what's going on? What's, what's your modus operandi when you're on your own in a potentially dangerous situation? I circle them like a hawk for a while. And then I will move closer. I will try and establish the eating and especially the drinking habits of the managers. And then try and be at a bar where they hang out and see who they hang with. And yeah, basically I gather intelligence. Once I am where I think I now have enough evidence to confront him, then I present myself to them. Look, here I am. I want to speak to your boss. Who is the boss of this whole logging operation? Invariably, it's never. He's never there. In this case, it was a guy. It's a guy called Ho Shuking, who has been on my radar because of my investigations into rhino poaching and uh, elephant poaching in the country. So this was sort of all part of Mr. Ho's, you know, stock in trade. I was very taken by the level of detail that you were able to get from your research on the ground and even more taken by the information that you brought to the Director of Forestry in Namibia, who in your initial investigation in 2017 doesn't come across as a very impressive man. Uh, was it was it your interview with him that made it clear that he didn't really have a handle on what was going on up in Caprivi? Yeah, what I typically do with these officials is I will go in first time uh, acting the wide-eyed naive and just ask sort of, you know, stack standard, you know, reporter question. Then I'll push a little deeper and then I go back for a second round of interviews. I say, oh, look, I mean, I have these little things I want to clear up. And when I go back the second time, I use everything he had said to me in the first interview to corner him. But what had happened is that um, because of the publicity I had been giving this particular uh, phenomenon, this sudden surge in, in rosewood coming out of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, it caused problems for Edgar Lungu, 
and his government, because then they suddenly realize, oh, there is all this wood, you know, streaming out of their country that they didn't know about. And they kind of closed down the trade, impounded the trucks until everybody had made a, you know, paid a fine, and then they sort of opened it up. So they then started moving into Namibia as, well, it's within the boundaries of Namibia itself. So you don't have this issue with CITES permits, you know, uh, crossing the border of, you know, wildlife contraband. Just to explain, CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, is an agreement between governments to protect endangered plants and animals from extinction. It was drafted in 1975 as a result of a massive increase in poaching and unlicensed trade. Now, CITES doesn't issue its own trade licenses. It classifies endangered species and requires signatory countries to have their own licensing and monitoring systems. Yes, we saw this very clearly earlier this year when they illegally exported 24 wild-caught elephant to two zoos in the uh, in the Emirates, in the uh, United Arab Emirates, clearly in contravention of you know CITES regulations and intentions. But CITES is, has no power to actually stop it. It is a, not a policing body. It is a regulatory body. It is not empowered to actually prevent any country from breaking CITES regulations, they can issue a finger-wagging statement about this, but membership is ultimately voluntary. So, you know, the the countries and the governments that, you know, designate officials to go and serve at the Secretariat in Geneva, those officials are paid by their own governments and they sing the tune that their government intends them to sing. There's another big systemic problem with CITES, which is that nobody vets the importer or the exporter listed on the permit. So what the traffickers do is they just create, they camouflage themselves in corporate vehicles. They often base these in what they called uh, secrecy jurisdictions or tax havens, and that confers them a lot of secrecy over the beneficial ownership, the activities, the revenue coming in. What we've seen in the past and what we ourselves have done as OCCRP is set up offshore companies and bank accounts from the UAE to Mauritius and Switzerland. And you see that these companies and systems offer you a multi-layer box tick process so that you can game the system. It's a bank account in one jurisdiction. Something like Panama, Marshall Islands or Liberia will provide maritime secrecy to give a fake corporate nationality to the vessels involved. And then even when they are caught, there's transshipment or ship-to-ship transfers turning off the radar, which tracks the vessels, changing the vessels' names uh, or nationalities. It can all happen within 24 hours. So moving something has never been easier. And CITES enables crime because they allow countries, especially corrupt governments, to self-police the activity under the guise of CITES. So that's a really big problem. One of the things that struck me was the legal status of the logging that was taking place in Caprivi that, that, that John found. There were so many different areas that were covered with so many different loosely enforced regulations. The Chinese teams were able to go in there on on a very flimsy premise and start what seemed to be logging indiscriminately. But no one seemed to know officially whether it was illegal or not. Why is that so important to nail down in your report? What is a pattern across the region where a single dominant political party has ruled since the end of colonialism. And they perform as a kind of corporate company using something called black economic empowerment, which is where someone who has political capital can get a stake in the business of any investor. And that means that they provide a certain level of political protection. Um, and it comes from the Russian, the, the, the Soviet tradition 
of being an umbrella to shield people from the rain. So they are political umbrellas. And what happens is that there's a technical legality where under the guise of empowerment, resources are given or there's a stake in a, in a certain corporate structure given to a local politician who then facilitates this as if it were legal. So you are running up against an illegitimate political system that veils itself as a legal one. And it's all done out in the open. And once it leaves the country, that's where opacity, global financial and legal opacity, camouflages the activities and confers a privilege. So for instance, the same rosewood trafficking was happening in Zambia, Namibia, the Congo, at the same time using the same organized crime cartels. 80% of Madagascar's rosewood timber is gone. And that means that all of the endemic species, including the species that people love to adore on television, like lemurs, they are now on the verge of extinction, if not already extinct. Very soon we may be seeing all of the things we love most in our world only on television or in a zoo somewhere. With the Madagascan rosewood, like Zambian, Congolese and Namibian rosewood, you see it going out on vessels that are often owned uh, or flagged in secrecy jurisdictions with companies that are based in other secrecy jurisdictions to hide the beneficial owners. And as John mentioned, the primary destination at the end of the supply chain, which appears to involve different companies, but it's usually the same actors camouflage behind these companies, is China. In traditional China, Hongmu was a status symbol. So it's something that has long been revered in their society. I mean, John, I'm, I'm full of admiration for the work that you, you've done in highlighting this. And it's, it's without doubt, as you acknowledge, that your work had an effect in Namibia. They, they put a moratorium on the harvesting of rosewood in 2018, and there's been a trading ban uh, since August 2020. But just, just tell me how difficult it is for, for someone like you acting on the ground unilaterally, often on your own, to try and go up against a government and organised criminals who are determined to rape your country of its natural resources. The greatest difficulty is that, you know, I'm basically going up against my own government. We have officials abusing their office like they're some sort of feudal masters to dispense patronage on the ground and then making an example of those that they have so empowered uh, by elevating them within the party ranks. Has, has your activities put a target on your back? Oh, uh, I am formally banned from the Ministry of Environment, Forestry and Tourism at the moment. <laughs> I'm currently under criminal investigation by uh, the Gubabas police for trespassing on a farm. Um, it is becoming really tough at the moment. But, you know, I haven't won the fight yet, but I'm still in the fight. So that's all that counts. I, I think for a journalist like John living in Namibia, He's not going to be appreciated for his contribution during the period of time where he is alive uh, because he has to call into account and call to question very difficult and ugly things. I wonder whether there needs to be some international coordination. If you say that CITES is toothless and that the Namibian government is too corrupt to do anything about this, where is change going to come from? Or are we just going to see countries like Namibia completely ruined before anyone does anything? CITES as a legitimating platform for criminals to take advantage of and to conceal themselves by is part and parcel of the easy virtue system that has been created. And all of that allows for the actors who are in control of the process to diagnose the problems in ways that do not expose their actual role, how they perform, 
and what they need to do to conceal those activities. So it all comes down to the same thing that the world is challenging at this moment, from big leaks like the Panama Papers to smaller issues like corruption in, in, in Namibia's timber industry. And that means we need automatic information exchange. We need a disclosure of beneficial owners. We need country by country reporting because criminals conceal themselves in corporate systems. And corporate companies want to keep those loopholes and contradictions alive so that they can siphon out profit as well. And in almost every country, we see the corrupt politicians are shareholders in the system. As long as we rely on easy virtue systems and we don't make the law mandatory at a global level, Criminals work in a transnational fashion and the law is locked at a national level. So we have to start anticipating how crime works across borders and not just react to it as it occurs after the fact. John, your second big article for the ACCRP on the rosewood trees in December 2020 had, had the you know, depressing title, They Are Finishing the Trees. You went back to find out that the situation has got worse. I mean, are we past the point of no return in certain parts of Namibia now? Well, I mean, I, I think the Rosewood resource has been, you know, fatally damaged in large parts, um, especially those areas closer to like public roads, which was, you know, cheap and easy to exploit. This is this is what I'm trying to do with my reporting. That it is often very grim stuff, but it has a positive effect that, you know, it elicits response from you know, the Namibian people, and often also from outside of the country. There were questions coming from, you know, abroad from the UN about what was going on with the Rosewood here. Um, one cannot ever give up because, hey, this is the only only rock we have to live on. And and I do appreciate the causes are always structural and the, the need for change seems to have to come from, from governments and intergovernmental uh, organisations which, which have teeth and clout. But there will be many people listening to this who will want to know what they can do on an individual level. People who've never visited Namibia before, but have read your work and are concerned about the degradation that's going on in, in parts of Africa through this illegal timber trade. What can people do on an individual level to try and help your work? Send me 50 more guys like me, please. 50 at least. <laughs> I really would like to you know, hand some of this work over because there is so much that needs to be investigated, but it's very difficult to do. It is very expensive to do. I mean, the best thing they can do is keep supporting people like the OCCRP who can, you know, keep funding me to keep doing this. And the best way to deal with this problem on a global scale is to keep independent investigative journalism alive and going. Because remember, years ago, 40, 50 years ago, it was you know, the accepted thing to club all those uh, uh, seal pups in, in Canada to death for beautiful white coats for beautiful women. Nobody wants to be seen in one of those things anymore. And this is what we have to achieve with the redwood furniture. That is the solution. And investigative journalism is the purest way to make people conscious about what their responsibility and duty is in our world, which is to protect the world that we live in and make sure that it continues on for the future generation. Khadija Sharif from the OCCRP and joining her for that interview was John Grobler, award-winning environmental journalist from Namibia, who first clocked the scale of what was going on in the north of his country. My next interview is with Dr Clemens von Dodora, a Namibian-based sustainability expert who also just happens to be a forester by training. Like John, he's been watching the illegal logging in Namibia and has been working to try to introduce better monitoring of what's happening and community-based actions to stop it. 
I started by asking him if the existing laws in Namibia were strong enough. The law is not, the way it is right now, is not strong enough, regrettably. It was drafted uh, quite a long time ago uh, when we didn't really talk much about climate change and the, the overusage of uh, natural resources, in this case, obviously, uh, trees or timber. Since then, also, the population has grown tremendously in Namibia from, I think, 1.6 to now 2.6, 2.7 million people. And so, obviously, has uh, the demand for, for resources increased as well. Uh, 1919, Namibia had 8.8 .8 million hectares uh, forest cover. And this is now, in 2020, was down to 6.6. .6. So Namibia has lost a quarter of its forest cover. So it tells you already, or we're just showing you those numbers, that the law and the implementation thereof is not good enough. How much of a problem is illegal logging? Is it a tangled mess or is it quite clear what's going on and, and, and how it needs to be stopped? It is certainly a tangled mess. Uh, on the one hand, if permits are being uh, handed out, they are limited to, I think, 600 trees per species per area or something like that. But this is always connected that they need to have an environmental impact assessment, uh, making sure that the trees actually can be taken out of the woods, so to say. And regrettably, often those environmental impact assessments or those environmental clearances are uh, not acquired through the official channels. And uh, then documents are being handed in which have a dubious background and then the um, director of forestry has another way then to say, okay, I assume that this is correct. And then they hand out the permits. But obviously on top of that, there's also over-exploitation that uh, uh, those who harvest trees then actually uh, harvest much more than uh, what is allowed. Uh, another issue we've, we've, uh, which has been reported to me was that empty trucks coming from Angola or coming from Zambia with seemingly legit permits from Zambia or from Angola uh, are coming over, crossing the border to Namibia, then actually load timber from Namibia, but then pretend uh, or claim that it is actually Angolan or uh, Zambian wood. And that also, it's very difficult for the authorities to, to um, obviously investigate the origin of the trees and the timber, and, and that makes it very difficult. How much appetite do you detect within the Namibian government for actually dealing with the problem of, of illegally logging these rosewood trees? I think there is a serious interest there because it really has caught the public eye and, and the media has been reporting about it quite quite a lot. At this point in time, officially, it's not legal. Uh, they're not allowed to cut any trees in any case. It's being sanctioned. And something uh, which is, has been going on now for the past year or so in the background is actually they are busy revising the Forest Act anyways. And they are addressing some of the key challenges around the legislation as we see it at this point in time. But I, I also feel that they could go further than what they're trying to do at this point in time. The legislation back in the days was essentially established to, to justify the establishment of a directorate of forestry. And it's very much about the administration. However, it lacks a clear definition of what a forest is. Uh, it lacks other definitions on, for instance, what is clear cutting, what is pruning and certain basic principles of what forestry is about. And, and there I still see shortcomings um, of the um, envisaged new legislation around forestry for Namibia. Does the Namibian government have the resources to protect the forests? Because John Grobler and Khadija wrote about Chinese criminal gangs acting indiscriminately. 
and they've got money, haven't they? They've got the, the ability to get into these forests and log them indiscriminately. Does the Namibian government actually have the ability to stop this happening, even if it's got the will? Regrettably, no. Um, still, it's under the directorate is underfunded and it is under-resourced in terms of, of human resources, infrastructure, vehicles, etc. So it's very difficult. And I mean, we're talking about vast areas they have to cover. And what makes it even more challenging, and I think this is especially for, for a from a Westerner perspective, difficult to understand, especially in the north where the forests are. We're also dealing with a concept which is unknown to, to, to the Western world. It's so-called community forests and communal land. Communal land means it's essentially owned by the tribes still. And the tribal leaders allocate the land as they, see, as they see or deem fit. And there is also no concept of individual ownership in that part of the world. So also in terms of corruption, in terms of mismanagement, it's quite easy for for criminals to get away because it's not always quite clear who are the responsible entities managing that particular piece of land. Is it now the traditional authority? Is it the management committee of a, of a community forest? Um, is it the state? And that makes it very challenging. How much optimism do you have for the future then? I mean, we you can't keep losing your rosewood trees, your hardwood trees, your ancient forests as fast as you are because it won't be long before they're all gone. I mean, what what needs to be done now? As part of our work, we work a lot with the communities, with the community forests and, and their management committees. We train them actually on the basic principles of sustainable forest management. And what we hear a lot, that there is a change of attitude also among the local community. They realize that they depend on the forest and if they're gone, they're gone. And therefore, also their livelihoods is then at risk. We see a change in attitude with the local communities, but we also see a change in attitude with government. The big potential I see is with vast areas of land available to be reforested and afforested, it also could help international investors, big polluters, to offset their carbon footprint through a carbon credit system or the cleaner development mechanism, as it was known in the past. Um, so there could be an economic incentive to reforest and afforest the land. But in order to achieve that, and this is the one bottleneck I also see at this point in time for Namibia, Namibia never ever had since independence a fully fledged national inventory of its forest. Just like a shop owner would have to know what he has in his shop to sell to his customers, the director of forestry also should know what it has in terms of how much is forest is left in terms of the area, but also what type of species are there, the age classes, etc., etc., that information is not available. Yeah, I suppose if uh, there are responsible traders coming into the area to to work to manage the forests as well as uh, use them as a resource, then they could squeeze out the illegal loggers and it could be for the benefit of the communities in the nation and keep the trade going at the same time. Uh, but it does bring me to CITES because both, both John and Khadija didn't have very many kind words to say about the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. Do you think CITES is fit for purpose? Do you think it needs to be strengthened or do you think it needs to be abandoned and and more local agreements need to be put in place that are stronger and easier to police? Well, as, as, as for any law, legislation or regulation, it's only as good as it is being implemented. I think CITES generally has has a place. Looking at it from a European perspective, till the days when the United Kingdom was still part of the European Union, it also was a strong lobbyist for the EU timber regulation which actually provides a very strong barrier for, for illegal, illegally harvested timber to come to Europe. And so CITES maybe could be improved further to, to um, along the lines of the EU timber regulation, for instance. But the question is, 
will any kind of legislation stop illegal activities or not? And as long as we see that allegedly Chinese businessmen are also bribing authorities, then it will always be difficult to apply any kind of legislation, even if it was CITES. Dr. Clemens von Dodera with his perspective on the situation in Namibia, which has lost a quarter of its forests in the last 30 years. Before that, I was speaking to Khadija Sharif and John Grobler about the OCCRP piece which inspired this podcast. It's called They Are Finishing the Trees. Chinese companies and Namibian elites make millions illegally logging the last rosewoods. You can find it on the OCCRP website. We were unable to contact Xu Chenghu for comment, but he was found not guilty on the poaching charges in 2022 and has never been convicted of any crime. We tried to make contact with CITES to ask them about the points raised in this podcast, but they didn't respond to any of our emails. Dirty Deeds, Tales of Global Crime and Corruption was produced by Lindsay Riley with research by Phoebe Adler-Ryan and Ria Musa at Rethink Audio. The series is a Little Gem production for the OCCRP. Don't forget to like, subscribe and follow to ensure that you get the next episode as soon as it's published. Thanks very much for listening. My name is Nick Wallace. See you next time.